Hi, you're listening to CS Book Club, and today we're reading the final chapter of Introduction to Graph Theory by Richard Trudeau. Uh, this chapter is about Euler walks and Hamilton walks. I'm Brian, and with me is Clint. Hello. Amy. Hey, everyone. And Justin. Hi, everybody. Oh, we reached the home stretch. Yeah. Yeah. That we are. We're only a few walks away from the end. Oh. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> so a chapter is an edge. We only, have, we only have one edge to walk. I think a chapter would be a vertex. The no. pages. No, because it's, it's, it's a journey between the beginning and the end. Hmm. Anyway. <laughs> like the page with the chapter title is the vertex. Okay. The eight dot. Yes. And it is a open Hamilton walk, right? Yeah. What does it mean for a walk to be open? Uh, <clears throat> a walk to be open means that, uh, well, first, a walk is a matter of traversing a graph. So a closed walk would be one where you hit every uh, vertex, I guess. Oh, I guess it's not technically. Yeah, it, it is. Uh, so it's the actual Euler walk's definition is you are to traverse every vertex and uh, in sequence, essentially, but land or return to the original vertex. So uh, the definition is a walk A1, A2, all the way to A, N, minus 1, N. It's closed if A1 and AN are the same vertex. Otherwise, the walk is open. So you can imagine a, a triangle with three vertices. That would be a closed walk, because you can go in all three of them. Each one's but the same, but the start and stop are the same one. So I think it's interesting how you phrase that, right? Because this is kind of uh, an interesting difference from a lot of the previous chapters where right now we're not talking about um, the general properties of the graphs. We're talking about the decisions you can make with them. Um, I thought that was kind of an interesting distinction, right, where, so for instance, a, a... graph that is a triangle of three three points, you know, it it isn't necessarily a closed walk. You could choose just to go from A to B. Um and that would be it. That would be an open walk. You're not ending in the same spot. Um but it's it's more we're talking more about the choices we're making, not about the graphs themselves. Yeah, it's like an action you perform on a graph. That's true. I think I, uh, think I kind of bended the actual definition of walking into a, uh, Euler walk where, uh, which is one where you actually do use every edge exactly once. So the decision is kind of made for you. I, I kind of blended the two definitions there. Yeah. And that's actually an interesting point though, because an Euler walk or any walk on a graph uh, so long as you don't go on the same vertices or edges, is a subset of the graph. Um, but then if, you know, if you're bouncing between A and B, for instance, 50 bazillion times, then the graph of your walk would be different than the, the graph that you are actually walking upon. Yeah, so I was just making silly points about bouncing around from point A to B being more skine than than a subset of the graph. So someone should probably jump in and take us to definition 36. 
Definition 36. An Euler walk is a walk that uses every edge in the graph exactly once. So this is just an, an analogy here. This would be you travel every road between a city once, but in theory you could hit a city infinite times, right? Um, for every degree of that city, yes. Sure. As long yeah, as you, you would have yeah. to have... Yeah. It's... it's yeah. And, and you would walk is concerning edges, so yeah, you yeah. could go through that vertex several times. Yeah. I think I just backed us ourselves into an interesting thought about is it possible to have an infinite graph, but we can skirt away from that rabbit hole very quickly. <laughs> I thought earlier on we decided that no, you could not have an infinite graph. No, that's probably true, and the issue is just as programmers, we could we could make there be an infinite graph. <laughs> As soon as I read the definition of the Euler walk, I thought of that, um, I feel like I, I saw it in school or other like books at some point where it's like a, a square with a rectangle with all the, all the lines drawn between like a, a four point complete graph. And then there's a little house on top, a little roof. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they say, you know, draw the shape without crossing any lines. <laughs> yes. I remember that. <laughs> So as soon as I read that, I instantly tried to do that again. Were you successful? Yes. It took me like five or six tries. <laughs> <laughs> so definition 36 leads us into theorem 30, which I think is what you were getting at, Clint, was that um, if a connected graph has a closed Euler walk, then every vertex is even. And conversely, if a graph is connected and every vertex is even, then it has a closed Euler walk, where even... Is just if its degree is an even number. <clears throat> the house shape does not have a closed Euler walk. That's a bummer. Yeah. I think this kind of intuitively makes sense, right? That, you know, if you're going to traverse things, um, traverse edges only once, and you need to get back to your original spot, you know, you, you can't. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, I also thought it was pretty intuitive. Although the the second part of the proof is kind of involved. Remind me what it means by a connected graph. There aren't any like dots hanging out. I guess to to use the walk nomenclature oh, connected okay. is that you could walk from one <clears throat> vertex to another for any vertex. I was I was thinking of a of a shape that this didn't hold up, but then it occurred to me that I'm not a mathematician, so I don't think I'm. Correct. And then I had to, I had a problem, so never mind. All right. <laughs> yeah, I think I agree with you, Brian. Like, the first part of the proof, that if a graph is connected and has a closed oil or rock, then every vertex is even. That's very intuitive. But then that second part, if a graph is connected and every vertex is even, then it has a closed oil or rock. That's a little bit harder to... Uh, to intuitively get. Yeah, and the like the mechanism for proof is like uh you know, like, okay, well you can you can get a walk, like so let's pick one, and then we'll show that like, oh, I can just kind of expand this arbitrarily. Yeah. A cool technique, but yeah, I, I don't think that I could have come up with that on my own. Yeah, this is definitely the kind of uh proof where if someone decided to write software like this, 
I would be like, great, and you're going to unit test it and integration test it and acceptance test it and monitor the heck out of it for me. <laughs> it is, it's interesting how that, like, the logic makes sense, but at some point you're like, I feel like there could be an edge case. Yeah, it definitely seems that way. You, know, you just take some arbitrary graph. Well, what about this one? I think later in the chapter, he has kind of a funny little remark about how, like, the pure mathematician can act out his or her violent fantasies by solving the general problem and then using the general solution to pulverize the original specific problem. So <laughs> maybe the mathematician doesn't worry about that kind of stuff, Amy. Yeah, there we go. So I think a, a part of that proof is illustrated, or at least the, the technique of that proof is illustrated by the, this figure that we have where they're taking an arbitrary walk um, that kind of looks like a, a flag, one of those medieval military triangle flags, um, and then slowly expanding it to cover... Um, a connected, uh, even graph. And so, you know, I mean, I think it, it definitely does make sense that that I can't disprove any one step and by the end I'm convinced. And I think the corollary 30 makes sense too once we accept that, that proof. Yeah, agreed. So that's basically saying that, you know, if if you can get a closed walk, you're essentially kind of making a circle, and so you can move the start and end point to any place, and you'll still be able to get back home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, the theorem after that was pretty intuitive as well. Like, I just kind of envisioned the, the closed weather walk, like, you know, snipping at one of the vertexes. Yeah, I initially got caught up on this because I didn't read, I uh, forgot there was an Euler walk, so it's like a connected graph that has an open walk, has exactly two odd vertices, and I'm like, oh, I can, I can design <laughs> all these things. But no, the fact that it's, that you have to, in addition to having an open walk, you have to hit every single existing <clears throat> Uh, vertice. I think that makes sense. Yeah, the object I was, or the graph I was thinking of earlier fits in this theorem because uh, it has two uh, vertices that were odd. So is there another similar corollary to this theorem? Uh, where if a connected graph has an open Euler walk, then the open Euler walk must begin at one of the odd vertices and end at the other. I think that's, um, like we were talking about earlier, Amy, like you have to get in and out of a, uh, of a closed walk, of each vertice of a closed walk. In this, it's like you have to have one method of ingress and one method of egress from the rest of your walk. So you've got to have an odd path out. Yeah, I think if you look at figure um, 147, uh, num- or part C, so the um, what this looks like, it's a it's a square, um, four vertices or 
yeah, four, four nodes, uh, four edges, um, and then two things sticking out at either end. And I think that shows, you know, you do have to, um, you have to choose where, you know, that your, um, odd vertices are placed, uh, because you can't do an open Euler rock on 147C. Um, and I guess, actually, that goes beyond corollary 31, which is specifically that, like, you have to begin and end. It's also, not only do you have to begin and end, but they have to be positioned correctly so that you can begin and end there. Um, so if you're being very technical, that would be a third corollary, or yet another corollary, but I think it kind of fits right in there. So going into Hamilton walks, uh, I appreciated the author's claim that Ireland has produced only one famous mathematician. <laughs> well, as someone who is three sixteenths Irish, and that is the most of any one thing that I am, I was I was very sad to hear this. I, I don't know if I buy it, but I didn't. You know, I looked at the Wikipedia category of Irish mathematicians, and you know, none of the other mathematicians like jumped out at me. But there are more than just like one who are notable enough for Wikipedia, which is, you know, never wrong. Anyway, um, so an open Hamilton walk is a walk that uses every vertex in the graph exactly once, and a closed one is a closed walk that uses the initial vertex exactly twice, but all the other ones exactly once. Not sure there's much more to say about that. <laughs> I'm still kind of confused why the author went out of his way to refer to him as a bizarre man. Like, I, I remember looking at the uh, Wikipedia... Well, I mean, I looked at the Wikipedia article, and, and his death was related to excessive drinking and overeating, but that was really the only mention of drinking. It's not like he was a wild drunk that I've seen. Well, he was, uh, he was an entrepreneurial drunk. Uh, made a game... That was also math. So I didn't realize before turning the page that, that this was exactly the traveling salesman problem. <laughs> That's cool. Because I've heard of that. Yeah, I was a little disappointed to realize that the traveling salesman problem did not take distance into account because, <laughs> I mean, you could end up with some very poor salespeople if you end up choosing the wrong, if you have a very interconnected graph and you end up choosing the inefficient way to go. It's like in physics how they assume, like, you know, a perfect sphere. We assume a salesperson with endurance. Yeah. How does that affect the efficiency? Assuming you have to go all, assuming you have to hit every vertex, what's what what impact? Especially if you're just doing once, what what impact is the efficiency there? So, um, so if you imagine a a map, right, um, uh, of uh, let's say L.A., uh, Anaheim. Uh, Eagle Rock, 
I'm just naming a bunch of city, smaller places in LA. Imagine like 50 of them around LA and Boston. It may be more efficient for you to drive through one of those suburbs again as you're tootling around LA um, than to make the uh, path all the way out to Boston. I don't know. Actually, that might that's a bad example, isn't it? Because that, that validates your point that um, if you have to go to every one of them and it's closed. I just... So this might be an interesting thing to think about because given that graphs don't imply distance between nodes, um, but reality does imply distance, so the weighted nodes, um, like I, I know there is a version of the traveling salesman where you assign weights to each node and it does change the outcome, but I'm struggling to come up with a good geographical analogy to this. Is the weight like elevation? The weight the weight would mean distance, right? So it basically says it costs you 10 miles to travel this node as opposed to 2 miles. Sorry, to, not this node. It costs you 10 miles to cross this edge rather than 2 miles and just 2 miles to drive this edge. Um, so yeah, and and you can you can apply different things to them. So for instance, if you're trying to find the most efficient way to, uh, you know, do an action, uh, you know, to, for instance, uh, so my, uh, the CS program locally has, uh, they discovered that they're, at one point they discovered that they're, they charted out all the requirements to get a CS major, um, and it was a, a cyclic graph, so there's a, a <laughs> yeah, a, a dependency that depended on another dependency. But so if you wanted to game the system, right, um, you could put weights on each of the, well, these would be weights on the nodes because the nodes would be classes and you'd be like, this is a really hard class. Um, so try to avoid it <laughs> as I get my degree. Um, but you could also say, try to optimize um, a particular path for something to happen. Let's say you know that there's a super expensive API call that takes on average 30 seconds, you could assign it a weight of 30 and try to, as you figure out, as you programmatically try to figure out the most optimal way to get your information or get something done, your program would be able to avoid it by by knowing that there is a cost of 30 seconds to um, traverse an edge. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's fine. Back to your, your city example. If you were to think of like somebody who had to go to Boston, New York, Chicago, St. Louis, and Miami, it would be really inefficient, right, to go Boston, Chicago, New York, St. Louis, Miami, then back to. Let me say they started in Boston, whichever. Yeah. Whereas it would probably be more efficient to go Boston, Chicago, St. Louis, Miami, New York, Boston. That makes much more sense. Yeah. You started and naming you started naming suburbs I wasn't familiar with, so I, I, it was hard for me to follow what distance was. When you said Boston, it was like, all right, well, that one's far away. Yeah, that was I, what I was trying to get to is like a whole bunch of things that are close to each other and one that's way off. But I think you're right. Like that's the wrong example. The right example is to give things that are kind of like a pentagram, right? And instead of or you know, 
like, you know, uh, with five it would be hard, but like, you know, 12 different points, and you want to get to the point where your algorithm selects the fact that the salesman should just really just go around in a big circle rather than trying to cut through and make a star shape. Yeah. <clears throat> it only took me like five minutes, I think, to get across a decent explanation of that. <laughs> Thank you for bearing with me. <laughs> We're here to help you talk it out. Yeah, there we go. So back to, I think we're at lemma 32. And I'll be honest, I did not quite understand what this is supposed to be saying. So it says, if the sum of the degrees for every pair of vertices. So what does it mean for there to be a pair of vertices? Does it mean, that, and they don't have to be directly connected or connected at all? Okay, so if I oh. have... Hmm. I assumed they were adjacent. I guess it doesn't actually say that. Okay, so if I have two vertices, this is a disconnected graph. There is no edge whatsoever. The math I would want to do, the sum of the degrees for every pair of vertices. So there's one pair. The degree is zero for the one and zero for the other. Mm -hmm. Then my the sum is zero. And the sum is not more than... Zero is not more than two minus one, so G is not connected. So the sum of the degrees is zero, and that is not at least one. So the lemma does, says nothing. And you have to do this for every single pair of vertices. Mm. And if every single pairing passes this test, then... Every pair of vertices is either adjacent to each other or a common third vertex, and G is connected. Yeah, I'll be honest, this is really, it's hard to visualize. Yeah. And it's hard to imagine, in part because each pair, like, the pairs can be so far apart, they don't, it's hard to think about how they might interact with each other, or, yeah. So they're, they're not, um, I guess I took one of the takeaways from this for me was, if you approach a graph and determine that it has this property, then you can be certain that like every vertice is pretty close to every other vertice because you're either adjacent to it or you like are you know one hop away, right? So like I read common third vertex is like you know I'm not adjacent to you, but I'm adjacent to someone who's adjacent to you. Um, and if that's true for every pair, then I feel like as you increase the number of vertices and then in the graph, you end up with like a big hairball, which is very connected. At least that's, that's just how I visualized it. Yeah. Your, your comment about, uh, vertices with no edges kind of throws me because I'm pretty sure this only applies to connected graphs. It says above, most of what is known about Hamilton walks is contained in two rather uninformative theorems. So when we're talking about Hamilton walks, we're talking about connected graphs. Yeah, definitely. I was, sometimes it, it helps to, uh, to go for a known negative case. I am 100% sure that, that two disconnected nodes are not in fact connected. So it, it was just a... It's like a sanity check. Yeah, exactly. Like, 
yeah, this this lemma isn't obviously false for the simplest thing I could I could imagine. Yeah. So then, with the same conditions as lemma thirty two, uh, you get a Hamilton or an open Hamilton lock. So that's neat. This proof was uh, challenging to follow. Uh, I admit I kind of glossed over it and just kind of kept going. Yeah, I feel bad because I got stuck, and I'm still a little bit stuck on 32, lemma 32. I'm sure if I sat down and, and worked through it a little more, I'd get it, but I did not even begin to parse the rest of it. I did, even though I didn't understand anything in between the statement of Theorem 32 and the, the statement of Theorem 33, I did think I understood the difference between it, because you're just adding, wait, V minus 1. Okay, so it's not that you're adding one extra edge. It's at least, well, no, you have to have an extra degree for every pair which means there's an extra edge for every pair than there are vertices. So there is there is some statement that you will have extra edges. So I I um I liked his comment about like these two theorems leave much to be desired um because these aren't like and I, I think this is where like like reading his comment about oh, these these terms are kind of weak sauce was what made me really get lemma 32 because he was like oh yeah like it's obvious that if you have an extremely connected graph then there's like probably a walk in there um <laughs> but it doesn't say much about like the vast majority of graphs that do have hamilton walks that don't exhibit these properties uh which is like i guess i would imagine that's why he says, like, we know tons and tons of stuff about Euler walks, but comparatively little about Hamilton walks, because yeah, we've got these, we haven't, we don't have, like, the, the cool theorems yet, haven't been able to figure them out. Yeah, I gotta say, like, the ones that, the Hamilton walks that don't apply to, that wouldn't be found through the method, or theorem 32... Um, and theorem 33 make a lot more sense to me. So like figure 149, uh, A, where it's literally just like a straight, you have a node connected to another node, to another node, just add infinitum. <laughs> like that, that having it, yep. <laughs> so what do you think so, about yeah. multigraphs? I really liked them. I felt like the rest of the chapter was like really dry, and then I, I was excited to get back to more more doodling. One of the things I like about multigraphs is I feel like it. Um, this is probably again the programmer perspective, but it represents choice far more than um, than the other graphs. You know, like you do have the choice to you know, just sit going back between city A and B. You hear these stories about people who essentially fly for a living, racking up frequent flyer miles and then selling them off and using some of them to fly more and get more frequent flyer miles. Um, 
you know, their lives look a lot like that. It is, it is entirely possible for your algorithm to get stuck <laughs> going from one to the other and right back. Um, so I appreciate them for that, that perspective. One of my, uh, one of my friends was an airline pilot for a while and I, I concur. His life was like a bunch of skeins. Skeen? Skeins? Skeen? I just assumed it was pronounced skein. I didn't really think about it. I thought of like skeins, like um, like on a tape deck, but maybe that's a differently spelled word. Moleskine. Hmm. See. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so like he would, you know, his life was like a skein emanating from St. Louis, basically. <laughs> But it's cool that, like, you know, all the same theorems for graphs or for walk-sound graphs apply to walk-sound multigraphs. Just, like, you know, add more lines. It still works. (laughs) Uh, I admit, when I read this at first, I was, like, frustrated. I know you guys sounded excited about it, but I was like, why would you even do this? Uh, you know, you're talking about Hamilton walks and such. Like, I saw, like, a really practical use of it. In fact, it actually came up in conversation last week, which was kind of uh, embarrassing. Because someone was talking about uh, they were skiing and they had to get from one side of the mountain to the other. Because one of their friends was, like, at the hospital. But they had to, like, they wanted to do as many runs as they could. And I was like, oh, well, you needed a Hamilton walk while your friend was in the hospital. And they were like, what did you just say? And I was like, I don't know. You should have gone fast to your friend. <laughs> like, I kind of backpedaled because I was like, well, there's an unrelated thing. But, um, and then, yeah, so we cut to, to skeins, or skeins or skein. Yeah. And, and it's like, well, when you have one line, what if you had two? What if? Why are we doing this? Uh, so this part just kind of went into the into the weeds for me of why are we even doing this? Like it's like a mathematician needed something to do. I don't know. I do respect mathematicians. I'm sorry. Um, I I think they're just that much smarter than me. They're they're just that much smarter than me. So Clint, I'll make a, an argument for the relevance of Skynes. Um so, uh, it allows you to, uh, number the, the, so in a regular graph, if you're trying to do a, a walk, you either have the, um, the restriction that, uh, you can do it, uh, once, um, or you can do it infinite times. And what Skynes can allow you to do is, um, visually demonstrate that you can do a maximum number of traversals. Um, for instance, um, it can allow you to provide, if you make them directional, obviously now directional graphs uh, are totally off of the, uh, that adds a whole new set of things, but then you can weight the different things um, differently, so the different directions differently. Um, I think, Applying it to this, uh, to the Konisberg, uh, bridge, um, 
problem kind of helps make it make it relevant. We want to make sure that uh, we want to represent the fact that um, you're only going. Uh, you can go over the bridge uh, twice, but um, you don't want to do it uh, more than once. That's fair. Actually, that's probably a misrepresentation of of this particular problem. It's that each bridge is separate, and each bridge is a repre- representation of the the sky. And so here we're trying to do um, essentially, you can go from point D to point B only once, but you can go from point A to point B twice. Uh, I found it difficult to, um, like, without looking at, like, at someone else's work, I found it difficult to, like, translate the map drawing of these bridges into a graph. I think it got too real, and then I got confused. Yeah. I Once I saw figure 154, I was like, oh, yes, clearly. Um, but yeah, uh, it did not immediately pop into my head correctly. I had, um, yeah, like the, I struggled with us making too many skines. And I think, like, yeah, obviously. (laughs) So we got some theorems about, uh, about multigraphs. These are all the proofs are all left for the reader, which I did not do. But yeah, I, I mentioned this earlier, but I, I need to read. I need to read a, a sentence. This is, uh, in this sense, the the, um, the machine here is a machine that solves general problems which you are inspired to build by confronting a specific problem. Okay. Once the machine is built and stands looming over the puny problem that suggested its construction, the pure mathematician can act out his or her violent fantasies by activating the machine and watching it pulverize the original problem. <laughs> and I... I think that that is like hilarious, but also kind of what we do as programmers often. Where, uh, at least for me personally, I, I like I like finding the general solution to things, and it feels like good when when I take a, when there's a specific problem, but there's like a more general solution that can be applied in other situations that crushes not only the original problem but maybe future problems that I didn't know I would have. That's actually really interesting because I took it the opposite direction. I'm like, aha, but this is where we programmers who actually have have to ship something have a have a bit of an edge up because we have to live in that space between uh, the the particular that we need to solve today and the general that that may or may not actually come to pass at any one point. Um, and so having to to balance that where I like I need to solve this particular case, I'd like to not mess up the future if, you know, cases two through 300 actually occur. But in all likelihood, 
product is never going to green light most of them. Um, so building this perfect machine that will crush uh, the particular uh, is probably the wrong way to go. But uh, I can I, also see... Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, I completely agree. Um, I, no offense, Brian, but I when I see very uh, <clears throat> big machines tackle the the problem and future problems, I think you... I feel like over-engineering might be a, a harsh term, but solving problems you don't necessarily have right now is, is almost a premature optimization type thing. And I find myself very practical, and I just want to solve the problem now. I mean, unless unless the other things are, are really looming, and you know it's going to happen, like, next week, then you should give yourself some wiggle room. But, you know, it, it's kind of the idea of iterating design, like... Let's solve the problem now, and uh, as long as you don't solve the problem into a corner where you know you're going to have to rip stuff out and refactor, um, yeah, I, I, I try to shy away from solving problems I don't necessarily have right now, and, and I can't really tell if it's going to be. I appreciate the 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 thrill of it. Uh, it is fun to solve that problem, I think, uh, but I, I, I'm lazy, and I like to just get it done, I guess. I see value in both. I'm sorry. I don't want to insult you, Brian. <laughs> I, lo- I love you, Brian. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I I have to say, like, probably on the small scale, I probably share what you feel like, Brian, and maybe this is what you were going for. It's like, just because you don't need a closure, you might use a function. You know what I'm saying? Like, you've solved the problem of, like, parameterizing this one thing. Like, that's the kind of thing that I'm talking about. I'm not talking about, like, well, let's write this in C because it has to run fast. And we've solved the general problem of performance. Or, you know, let's, uh, you know, build a graph database for our two-node social network, right? Like, I, I would agree that that is, that is overkill. That's a really lonely social network. It's actually this new social network that I've got VC funding for. <laughs> I feel like there was an app like that a few years ago that was like literally just for you and your spouse and it was it was that exclusionary it was like married partners or domestic partners and like uh that was silly like a bespoke app for your marriage <laughs> yeah with special emoji brian special emoji uh, that might give me the shell out for it <laughs> marriage themed emojis <laughs> So I think that brings us to the end. Yes? Yep, I think we have successfully ended Introduction to Graph Theory with marriage-themed emojis. Oh, man. <laughs> imagine that. No, imagine that, though. Like, it's really invasive, but imagine it, like, uh, uses, like, AI or, like, some kind of machine learning or, or whatever to monitor your interactions. And then you, as your relationship progresses, you unlock different emoji. So if, like, you guys are arguing a bunch, you, like, unlock the angry emoji and the divorce emoji. And then it's, like, giving you feedback. You're like, look, guys, this is not working. Look at your emoji options here. But it always gives you, like, a couple hearts or something so that you can, like, try to redeem yourself. I'm just thinking of, like, a, you know, a choose-your-own-adventure or, or some kind of, like, role-playing game where you get to choose and make choices that affect the outcome. Like, everything around you is going to be on fire because that's how you've been. But there's always that one little way out. Anyway, See, that would be really, and that, really terrible. And that could be represented with a graph. There we go. That's how we bring it back. There you go. Your places are a graph. 
the the Hamilton Walk of Marriage. <laughs> so overall, what you all think of the book? We mentioned this earlier too, but <clears throat> when uh, starting the book, I assumed it was going to be more computer science related. Uh, I'm glad that I read it and I learned a lot, um, but it wasn't really covering the kinds of graphs that when we got to that section where it said, this book will not talk about directed graphs, I was like, oh no. <laughs> I've made a huge mistake. Yeah. <clears throat> but uh, one thing I did gain, uh, aside from knowledge of graphs, is I have a little confidence now of learning, um, I guess, more abstract uh, math concepts. That I'm able to like work through a, a textbook and or or book and learn them uh, slowly but surely. I found the book to be very comprehensive in the topics it discovered or discussed. Uh, like Justin, I, I was not I was disappointed in the lack of uh, application it had to my job. Um, but uh, you know, I've 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 mentioned <clears throat> learning software languages that I have no intention or no thoughts on using because if nothing else, it'll make me think differently or expose me to different things. So in that regard, it was, it was good. Um, I learned a lot more about uh, the quirkiness of mathematicians and just a different uh, area of math that I really didn't touch on in college. So uh, it was, it was neat to be reading academic stuff like this again. Um, it, it did struggle to keep my interest at some points, but uh, it was good. For its part, on its subject matter, it was very comprehensive. And I admit, I, I had a bit of a guilty pleasure in uh, reading the chapters, just waiting for like the next like quirky thing the author would say, like building machines to smash puny problems and mock. Yeah, I'm ridiculing Eilish for their one bizarre mathematician. That was always fun. Did you have any closing thoughts, Amy? Nothing that wasn't already shared. You know, I think uh, it didn't quite hit some of those points that uh, some of the aspects that are interesting about graphs to uh, programmers and computer scientists. So that was kind of a difference in, in expectations. Had I, had I gone into it uh, knowing that we wouldn't kind of touch on those uh would have been a very different experience, but it was fun to, to dig into some of these and to kind of appreciate what graph theory is about. Agreed. Agreed all around. Well, uh, I think that will do it for us. So thanks for listening. Thanks for reading. Thanks for reading. Yeah. Brian. So this is where it says bye. Bye. See ya. Thanks everyone. Bye everyone. <laughs>